Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. In just a moment we'll be beginning with verse 15 and going through verse 21. And some of us may find it disturbingly appropriate that we land on this morning's passage in the midst of the hustle and bustle of the holiday season. The primary theme we will be looking at involves the careful use of our time. Something that seems to be compact and fleeting in the run-up to the end of the year with, with papers and exams for students, deadlines at work, Christmas party, last-minute shopping, preparations for time with family. I have little doubt... I'm not disillusioned in the reality that some of you will be tempted throughout the remaining time that we have together this morning to be thinking ahead of what you need to get done before tonight's winter wonderland or developing your plan for the last full week that you have before Christmas. But I encourage you to stay with us as we open God's Word together. Before we do, would we... Just pray and ask and invite His Spirit to move among us. Father, thank You that You give us this privilege, week after week, this freedom to come. And without needing to be in secret or in fear, we can worship Your name. We can study Your Word. That is a privilege that many throughout the world and throughout history have not had the privilege of. Yet you have blessed us with that. So I pray that we would make wise use of this time. That you would give us ears to hear, minds to focus, and hearts to respond. For our good and for your glory, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, please open to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to begin reading in verse 15. Continuing our series. The Apostle Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. May God help us to understand and to learn from and to apply His Word this morning. I want to just start with what our outline uh, of this passage is going to look like this morning. The main idea of this passage is that we need to walk carefully. Making the best use of the time. Paul gives the reason for this because the days are evil. Then to bring clarity 
to what a careful walk and good use of time are, we have three contrasting couplets of ideas that each include a a not this, but this kind of phrasing. These aren't three totally different areas. Instead, they are really all the same idea with each successive phrase amplifying and progressing along the lines of the one before it. So it starts with, Don't be unwise, but wise. Then it continues to expand on not being unwise as don't be foolish. And it begins to not just amplify it, but begins to add in a spiritual component that we'll see as we go on. Instead, not being foolish, but understanding what the will of the Lord is which amplifies the idea of wisdom to understanding the Lord's will. And then we progress to not getting drunk with wine, which is debauchery and the height of foolishness in many pictures by the biblical writers. It's a giving control of your mind and body over to a substance. But instead, we're told we're to be filled with the Spirit. Again, a progression from not only understanding the will of the Lord, but yielding your life to His influence. And then the last part of this section is we we have some specifics of what this Spirit-filled life, this careful walking and best use of our time looks like. Some examples, some practical applications in addressing one another. Singing and making melody to the Lord. Giving thanks always, and submitting to one another. That is how we're going to walk through this passage today. We're going to start with the big idea and the rationale Paul gives us for it. And then we'll look at those different sets of progressive characteristics before finishing with some of the particular application the Apostle envisions for disciples who are living these things out. And we start with walk carefully making the best use of the time that's really the heartbeat of this passage obviously as humans upon this planet we all have the same allotment of time we all get 60 minutes in an hour 24 hours in a day and and 365 days in a year no one gets 26 hours some days or 350 days some years We spend our lives, our hours and our days with that same gift, but we can spend them in vastly different purposes or for different ends. So the question I want to raise first is is what comes to mind when you hear this topic of a careful use of your time? Some hear it and and our minds quickly run the seven habits of highly effective people or or getting things done or or whatever uh, productivity resource is hot in business circles right now. There is a ton out there on time management. Time is money. And so there is a premium on efficiency and productivity and making the most of time. The business world has some, I would say, helpful tips and tools that can be practically beneficial to many of us. That's one of the first places 
my mind goes when I hear this topic introduced. Maybe your mind goes to athletes preparing right now for the upcoming Winter Olympics who have spent years of dedication and devotion so that they might undergo a few brief moments of grueling competition. For years, their lives and their families focus on a singular future goal. They train for hours every day. They, they choose where they live down to what they eat based upon this goal. Every part of life and ske- schedule is impacted in hopes that their future might include the fame and spoils that accompany victory. They are single-mindedly focused in how they spend their hours and their days. Or maybe, when I mention a topic like this, there's just a sense of dread or guilt at the mention of how we spend our time. Because, Because you know you don't make the best use of your time. You have squandered opportunities. What comes to mind for you is not good examples of time management or devotion to a cause, but the hours or even years that have been given to trivial or even sinful pursuits. Or perhaps, perhaps you're a mom who vaguely remembers when you used to have some control over how you spent your time before intermittent sleep, dirty diapers, and endless cycles of of cleaning, cooking, washing dishes, doing laundry, and carpools became your world. Hearing a topic like this contempts exasperation or jealousy of those who actually have the luxury to even consider such a topic. Does Scripture even have anything unique to say about how to best make use of our time. Anybody know who this quote is by? A man who dares to waste one hour of life does not know the value of life. Any guesses where that comes from? Wasn't by who? No, but thank you, thank you. That's very generous. I'm not that quotable. That was by one Charles Darwin. A man who dares to waste one hour of life does not know the value of life. Now, could this quote be mistaken for one by Jim Elliott or Jonathan Edwards? This isn't an area of life that Christians own the corner on the market We aren't the only ones for whom time and careful living are a concern. We can glean helpful principles and bits of wisdom from many different places. But what I would want to bring to us this morning is that it is essential that we reserve our greatest influence on any topic for God and for His Word. So look carefully than how you walk, Paul begins. And, and, and I don't know about you, but, but even just that phrase, it's in this regard that I, I personally can feel put to shame by a quote like the one from Charles Darwin. 
that a man who dares to waste one hour doesn't know the value of life? I've wasted plenty. It, it drips with the concern and the care taken for a life lived with intentionality and purpose. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not encouraging anyone to devote their life to the same purpose that Darwin committed his, but I do find his devotion provoking. And I think his words highlight a gravity similar to what Paul wants his hearers. Paul wants us to grasp. For Paul, the phrase that infuses the command with importance and urgency is one that follows it. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, now Paul isn't saying here that, that there are bad guys all around and, and bad things going on. That's not the statement he's making. The days are evil is more of a shorthand used by New Testament authors to reference our place in history. Our place in history within the last days. The period between Christ's ascension and His eventual triumphant return. See, during His earthly ministry, Jesus introduced the nature and the power of His kingdom, showing the authority He had over sickness and disease, demons and nature, even sin and death themselves. And though He inaugurated His kingdom 2,000 years ago, it didn't come into its fullness at that time. The place that we are living now is not the fullness of the kingdom that will come. Sin and sickness, disease and death continue as enemies in this present broken world. Creation still groans for redemption while much of mankind remains hostile Toward God. The ruler of this present age continues to cloak the world in darkness and blind the eyes of men. As believers, Paul wants to remind us that we are given a call and the message to be light in the darkness and that we must never forget that we dwell in a time when the days the days are still evil. In this context, Paul's reminder really functions in two ways. One, we must recognize the environment that we find ourselves in. It is a hostile world, even though it can often be alluring. It can be attractive to us at times. This world is not our home. This is not the place that we were made and redeemed for. We need to remember that. We need to look carefully how we walk. And two, this world has an expiration date. This world is passing away and then all will face judgment. That is a certainty. That day is coming. None of us knows the number of days that we have left. Our time here is temporal and it is fleeting. So Paul calls us 
make the best use of the time that you have. Next, we see these verses highlight three things that disciples seeking to walk carefully are to avoid. As I mentioned before, they, they are all in the same category, each one being an amplification or a progression of the one before. So, starts in verse 15 where we're told to walk not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 17, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. So we're told, don't be unwise, don't be foolish, and don't get drunk with wine. Now, just starting with the first one, being unwise, well, that could be amoral. That, that, that could be simply we're not wise out of ignorance. There isn't necessarily a moral component to a lack of wisdom. Unwise choices don't equate with sinful choices. Lack of wisdom can arise from a lack of training or experience. But when we progress to the next category, when Scripture comes to the topic of foolishness, virtue becomes a factor. The psalm says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Foolishness isn't just childishness or goofiness. It transitions from the place of ignorance and inexperience to a willful flaunting of God's created order and His declared will. See, God has established how this world is to work. Not only in terms of His moral order, but how all of creation holds together and is run. But the fool lives as if there are no divinely established rules or consequences. But they're a fool because no one breaks the laws of God. They're only broken by them as they throw themselves, throw themselves into them. To take an example from the natural world, you can try all you want to spit in the face of the laws of gravity. But you're going to break yourself against those laws if you jump out of a plane without a parachute. God has established the way that His world works. He's made it clear. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A man will reap what he sows. God has established an order and it's foolishness to flaunt that order and to throw ourselves headlong against it. But Paul doesn't stop there. In Scripture, drunkenness is used as a height of folly, a height of foolishness, often epitomizing the ways of darkness. It's a giving control of our minds and bodies to the influence of a substance and it is a gateway for many other regrets and sins. It's a form, Scripture says, of debasement and 
debauchery. It removes from us our God-given senses and faculties. And so here it's contrasted with being filled with the Spirit under whose influence we don't lose control, we gain it. Because self-control is a fruit of the Spirit's activity at work within our lives. This progression of foolishness is not to mark disciples. We walk carefully by setting our direction upon another path. Instead, we are to walk as wise. We are to understand what the will of the Lord is. And we are filled. We are to be filled with the Spirit. Again, we see a progression and an amplification from wisdom, which we said doesn't necessarily include moral components, to an understanding of the will of the Lord. To being then filled with His Spirit and yielding to His influence in all of life. Now, it's, I hope and I trust, plain to see that wisdom is certainly better than a lack of wisdom, but, but having wisdom and gaining some wisdom does not require salvation to live out wise principles and gain benefit from them. Many in this world can live according to wise standards and principles, learn from mistakes and, and do things that frankly can put many of us to shame every day. But it's another thing to understand the will of the Lord and how He would have us to live and to reflect Him. That is something that can only come by the Spirit's illumination. God's Spirit sheds light on God's Word, bringing understanding and conviction and encouragement and assurance, peace and joy. The context contrasts understanding the will of the Lord with foolishness that we mentioned earlier, which we talked about as a flaunting of God's revealed order and will. When we talk about God's will, there can be some confusion. What I want to make clear, this isn't the hidden will of God that we all seem to crave from time to time. You know, sh should I marry Jim or Bill? Not me personally. <laughs> Do I pursue this major or go to that college? Should I take this job or move to that city? That's not the hidden will that is being referred to here. Instead, it is referring to the much greater scope of God's revealed will. The will that He has made clear and made plain to us through His Word. The will that He has given us His Spirit to understand, to reveal, to help us apply. Understanding His will helps us to ask questions at some of those crossroads, like, is there a clear prohibition against this thing that I'm thinking about doing? Well, if so, that's all I need to know about the will of the Lord. He has told me this is not what I am to do. If He has made it plain in Scripture that this is not the way disciples walk, there's not an exception clause for me personally in this situation. He has revealed His will to me. And to all of us. 
Another question can be, do I have faith to move forward with this? Where scriptures talk about where there is no faith, it is sin. So as we walk through decisions, that's a question that we can use to evaluate. Is this something that God may be calling me to? Ah, there, there is. There is faith. Now, it may not be that rock steady where there's no doubt or no question. It may start with a mustard seed that grows as, as we take steps and are faithful. But has He given me faith to move towards this direction? Can I do this, this thing that I am contemplating and proposing? Can I do this to the glory of God? It's one of the things that should give us faith. The fact that I can take these steps fully believing I am doing this for the glory of God. Understanding the will of the Lord is not like consulting a magic eight ball or, or looking for writing in the sky. It's about understanding what He has written what He has already made plain to us. That's what it means when it talks about understanding the will of the Lord. It's directly contrasting the fool who can see oftentimes what the will of the Lord is, but they flaunt it. They go against it. They fight it. They refuse to submit to the will of the Lord. So the contrast of that is understanding the will of the Lord, following it. Paul progresses from wisdom to understanding the Lord's will and then amplifies that understanding with being filled by God's Spirit. The wording used indicates that this is not a one-time filling, but a continual, ongoing filling. Being filled indicates, just by its very nature, that, that we are receivers we have something that is being done for us and to us. God is filling us. However, we are also participants as this filling requires a cooperation and a yielding to His Spirit and His will in order to make us more and more like Christ. Now, now this idea of being filled with the fullness of the Spirit, the fullness of Christ, the fullness of God is, is a theme that Paul repeats throughout this letter. We've heard it several times already. In, in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul writes, and he puts all things under his feet, talking about Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church, the church, which is his body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church is declared to be the fullness of Christ. In his prayer at the end of chapter 3, Paul prayed for his readers that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. So, so we see this picture where Chapter 1, he declares, we are, as the church, the fullness of Christ. His representation on earth, that is our right, that is our identity. 
And yet Paul also recognizes this is something that needs to keep happening experientially. Though it is owned by the church, it's still something that we need to experience on an ongoing basis. And so he prays for his readers that they would be. Those who are the fullness of Christ would be filled with the fullness of God. And then in chapter 4, we saw that gifts of leaders were given to the church. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again, we see this theme throughout where Paul is most concerned with us being filled with the fullness of Christ, the fullness of God, the fullness of His Spirit. It's something that is ours as the church. And yet, it's something that still ongoingly needs to be done, that we need to experience, that we need to cooperate with, that we need to receive and walk in. For both church and believer This fullness is something we already have been given, but we need to participate in living out. It has been purchased for us. It is being given to us, but needs to be walked out by us. Now, I recognize that in a group like this, understandably, there are some segments of the church that get very nervous when we start to talk about being filled in particular with the Spirit. Partly because the Spirit is a bit mysterious and unknown, but probably even more so because they've heard of the behavior of other believers, types of behavior that they want no part of. And just... To be frank, in the name of being full of the Spirit, some take the the description of drunkenness more as something to be emulated rather than the contrast it is meant to be. Being filled with the Spirit is not something that Paul uses to encourage losing control, but rather gaining self-control. It is meant to be an integral part of the normal Christian life. It is meant to function a lot like breathing. It is to be natural and continual. Not something we work up to or experience only on occasion. I mean, like breathing, we can hold our breath. But it's not advised to do so for very long. We're meant to function through the normal taking in and breathing out of the oxygen that God has provided, the way our bodies are made to work. We, we as believers, are meant to function always under the influence of God's Spirit. He empowers us and guides us towards righteousness. And the more that we train ourselves and grow in the understanding of the Lord's will that we talked about, understanding what He has written for us in His Word, ingesting that, growing in wisdom and understanding, the more natural 
and the less conscious this, this filling becomes. It becomes many times indistinguishable with just how we think because He has trained us. He has helped us to understand. He speaks to us. You know, that, that, that's something that, that may seem odd at first when, when, when someone is converted and, and they just don't know where these thoughts are coming from because they're thinking in ways that they never thought before. Something is very different. And we can consciously be aware of many of those differences, but the further we go, the further we grow in the Christian life, the more this just becomes the air that we breathe. Food for our souls, the more it makes sense, the more we're not surprised at the counsel He provides and the path that He guides us on. And so... It can become like breathing in and breathing out. Now, Paul doesn't make us guess at what being filled by His Spirit looks like. He gives us characteristics of being filled with the Spirit. He gives us four in the remaining verses. The first is that we're addressing one another in Psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs. Now both this one and the next one, where it talks about singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, they highlight this element of singing and making music, and and really they can refer even to the same activity, such as a time of, of corporate singing during a worship service. But they refer to different elements of those same activities. And, and this first attribute is focused on the horizontal dimension, the, the one to another element that comes with our speaking and our singing. While number two's focus is on more the vertical, the God to man, the man to God dimension. I think each of these is, is also broader than just corporate singing. Addressing one another really is the main idea here, with song being the highlighted example. I I don't think what Paul is meaning here is that we need to talk to each other like we're in a musical. How are you doing? Fine, how are you? And Sorry, it's not my gift. I've only ever been to one Broadway show. Mom and Dad took my three younger brothers and I to see, and I could even butcher the shortened version, Les Mis, okay? A number of years back in a misguided attempt to bring culture to the barbarians. (laughs) Afterwards, I remember making what I thought was one innocent observation followed up by simple question. I said, I didn't realize it would all be singing. <laughs> I mean, I knew that there was going to be singing, but there wasn't one word of spoken dialogue. 
That was a revelation to me. So I followed up with, is that what all Broadway shows are like? I've never received the answer to that question. Instead, I just received the vow that my father would never take us to anything cultured again. Which is a promise he's been faithful to fulfill. I wasn't saying it was bad. I Really, I was just clueless. That's not what Paul is trying to get to. That every word, every encouragement needs to be in song and in melody. But there is a a very real element where part of the purpose that we sing is for the activity of addressing one another. And and I don't know about you, but, but this is something I can often forget. I think we're familiar with that, the element that's coming in the second part where we're addressing God in our song. But, but God makes it clear that through the act of singing, we're also addressing one another. And hopefully we all experience this, this benefit somewhat regularly when, when a song, even as we're singing, our praise to the Lord, it, it, it just, it spoke to me. A place where we are comforted or encouraged as we sing together. Where an aspect of Christ's saving work impacts us deeply. Where an attribute of God makes our hearts rejoice. Or simply gaze in wonder. Song has a way of getting to us. Now, it's really God speaking to us, illumining things to us by His Spirit, moving on our hearts and minds to come to understanding, to encounter us where we are, where we need to hear His voice. But it comes through the activity of our songs together. Paul is writing to the gathered church here and and mentions singing as a way that we can all participate in addressing one another together. Again, I, I don't think that's the only way that we can address each other. I mean, certainly what we experienced this morning with folks coming to the mic, that, that's another non-melodious way that it's happening. Uh, please don't hesitate after the meeting without feeling any compulsion to burst into song to address one another with psalms, with encouraging words, with the great truths of God that will stir one another's souls, raise our affections and our gaze towards heaven. Those two fit within the realm of spirit-filled ways to address one another. Secondly, we come to this singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, again, we could use that that same example of corporate worship, and this part would be the Godward component of our singing. We, we do, we do derive benefit from our singing. Songs can teach us great truths, great realities of God. They can remind us and spark our affections. But they're also a way for us to express our hearts to God. 
Singing is a wonderful way for our affections to be stirred and expressed to the One about whom we are singing. We remind ourselves of what is true about God and His salvation. In the process, we proclaim to Him His greatness and our love and affection for Him. Singing isn't just the warm-up act for the preaching. I need to remember that sometimes. But worship in song is a prime opportunity to respond to truth by expressing our amazement and our affections to God directly. What a privilege we have to do this. We get to address not only one another. We get to address the Almighty. Directly give Him our praise. I find it helpful that this verse includes singing and and making melody. And even it adds on with your heart. I think by including making melody, worship is broadened from just the words that we sing. It certainly includes them. But it means that musicians like Philip and Danny and Boaz and Ryan who are playing this morning and have skills that I can't comprehend can make music to the Lord and truly worship while they do it. The instrumentation isn't just helpful background noise. As much as it is done to the Lord, it is worship. Now, let me be plain. Words matter. Expressing truth is important. But singing is not the only component of expressing our hearts, and our affections, our gifts, our emotions towards God. And that last phrase, with your heart, is especially comforting for those like myself who have neither musical training nor ability. My dad can sing. He can sing fairly well in a classical and cultured manner. My three brothers and I did not inherit any such gifts. From early on, Dad thought I was tone deaf. Who knows? One of my brothers tried to participate in the school band, but the director asked him to stop. (laughs) I don't think any of us are adept at singing and clapping at the same time. An argument could be made for even doing those things individually. It doesn't go well. I'm really glad that the entire emphasis isn't on making melody. Because I don't know if I experientially even know what that is. But I do know what it is to sing to God with my heart. And like that first category, I I don't think this is limited just to our corporate singing. It certainly includes that, but it can be in the car. It can be just those expressions of worship to God whenever He captures our hearts. And we reflectively respond to Him. Number three, giving thanks always and for everything 
to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. My youngest daughter is, is really good at asking cashiers for stuff when we are out. It started a couple of years ago when she noticed that sometimes when we would go through the checkout line, they would offer up a, a sticker, usually like a paid sticker. Um, really exciting stuff. <laughs> now, every time, without fail, every time that we are in a checkout, she's asking for something. If it's a store she's not familiar with, she'll just ask for a sticker. She, she's pretty much learned the regular ones that we go to, which ones give stickers, which one you can get a balloon at, where the bakery section is, where you can go for the free cookies. The funny thing is, I never have to remind her to ask. Not once. Sometimes, actually, I wish she wouldn't. But saying thank you afterwards, that is something I remind her of. That doesn't seem to come as spontaneously or eagerly as the asking. And I know my heart is no different. Gratitude reveals the Spirit in us. An attitude of thanks that permeates our lives can only come from the Spirit. Grumbling and complaining marked the nation of Israel. And let's be honest, many of us from time to time. And God declared that, that He detests that complaining heart. Because it is the exact opposite of a grateful one. Now, I'm no language guru. You, you're well aware of that because you hear me speak every Sunday. But when Paul says that we're to be giving thanks always and for everything, what he means is always and for everything. Neither of those words have really any room for a different interpretation. In regards to the right time to give thanks, it's always. In regards to what we are to give thanks for, for everything. He could have chosen other words. Sometimes or usually or most of the time or when you feel like it. I think all of those would have been in the apostles' vocabulary. But he chose not to use them in this case. Is there ever a time or circumstance in which gratitude towards our Creator and Redeemer is not appropriate? Not according to these verses. He is able to redeem and rescue from any situation. He uses all things. Again, a phrase that leaves no room for wild interpretation. He uses all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes.
Friends, even when that redemption is hidden from our eyes, it is not absent in His purposes and what He is working out. So we give thanks. Even when all we see is just the promise, not the presence of what He will do. We do this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ because only in Him will everything be made right. Fourth, we're to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This verse starts the transition to the next section which will focus on the relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and master. But grammatically, it is very much... uh, in place with these verses. Obviously, in the following passages, wives, children, and slaves will be called upon to submit to husbands, parents, and masters in ways that are not reciprocal. However, from those verses, it is also clear that husbands, fathers, and masters are submit their way of relating to those under their authority out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is acknowledging that we all have one Lord and Master. We may have different roles and functions within the church and home and society, but we are all subject first and foremost to Him. He has authority to call us into whatever service He will. For those that, humanly speaking, are under authority, In case you didn't know, we all are under authority in some ways. We honor that authority as a way of honoring Christ who placed us under that authority and to whom all our service and devotion is to be rendered. And for those that find ourselves in any authority, and again, most of us do in some form or another, We are called to reflect Christ in the way we carry out our role. We are to reflect the One who humbled Himself to come and to rescue us, His enemies. We're to reflect the One who had all authority but was born in a stable so that he could die on a cross. Reflect the one who came not to be served, but to serve and laid his life down as a ransom for many. Our relationships, all our relationships, are to be lived out in such a way that we evidence our reverence, our submission to Him. With each of these four things, as we walk them out, we will reveal wisdom. We will reveal an understanding of the Lord's will and and being filled with the Spirit. And 
our time, our time will be well spent. Now, for those who have struggled, maybe even from the beginning of this topic, with with guilt, the reality is that, that we can't get back that which we have squandered. That's sobering. That's the consequences of the choices and the actions, the decisions that we make. But Christ died for those sins as well. He is able to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. He came to redeem it all. One day, He will wipe every tear from our eyes. Every regret from our record. This is the work that He came to do. We need to be more aware of what He came to do than what we have failed to do. I want to end by seeking to bring Christ clearly into view over not only our mistakes with this topic, but this whole topic. Walking carefully, making the best use of our time, I want us to make sure we realize that it isn't about getting more things done or even getting better things done. The same God who included in His Word for us to make the most of the time also calls us to rest. He has created us with a need for daily sleep, something that He calls a gift for those He loves. He has set aside for us one day in seven to rest and to recuperate. Scripture says for our benefit. The Sabbath was made for us, not us for the Sabbath. That's something that Jesus made clear during His ministry. Making the best use of time isn't about jamming more into our full lives or feeling bad about what we aren't accomplishing, but about relating with the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of and beyond all time. It's about understanding His will and being filled with Him, the Eternal One. It's not about getting more stuff done. Christ came to be our Sabbath, to be our rest, to provide a way for us to receive rest both in the present, in the temporal ways that we do, as well as the everlasting ones. All the essential doing in your relationship with God has already been done by Him. His definition of making the best use of the time is to call you into a relationship with Him so that you can rest in Him forever. The best use of time we can see from this passage is growing in relationship 
with Him. Yes, there, there are still actions, there are still activities, there are still applications, but all in the context of relating to the One whose yoke is easy and His burden is light. Until that coming day when we will lay down our light and momentary troubles and join Him in glory. I have no intention of minimizing anyone's struggle or trouble or busyness, but I do want us all to see it through a different lens than our to-do list or our five-year plan. Making the best use of time isn't about efficiency. It's about relating with the eternal God and His Spirit-filled people. May He grant us all grace to do this together. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You stepped into time. To rescue us. Even our misappropriations of it, our bondage to it, our fear of what is to come. You came. You really came. You entered our world to rescue us. Would you help us to see you as Lord of all of our time? And that your greatest desire for our wise and good use of our time is to be growing in relationship with you. Help us, Lord, as as we fight distractions to cling to what is most important. Thank you that you have given us your word and your spirit. Now would you help us to go and to apply, to live out these truths for your glory, we pray. Amen.